Welcome to the Wave Podcast, Episode 0, The Wave is Here. When we look at the past decade, we can see clearly that African artists and creatives from the continent or part of the diaspora are revealing themselves to the international cultural scene. Social media has played a huge role in showcasing this creative wave, which continues to wash over the world, presenting a different vision of the continent and of its vibrant cultures. Challenges are lessons that have always in the past made Africans stronger. Through adversity, Africans have learned that resilience is one of their core strengths. So will it be with the COVID-19 pandemic. Having said this, COVID-19 also has taught us significant lessons already. It has highlighted and confirmed the need for the African creative scene to structure itself and strengthen its ecosystems for a more efficient creation value chain that attracts talents and investments that yield wealth. While the Council of Fashion Designers of America, or CFDA, or the French Federation of Ready-to-Wear were saving the future of their creative industries through the provision of financial support, almost no similar type of actions were available for Africans and the African diaspora. This is in large part because Africans do not have structures such as federations that regroup and provide support to creatives. Indeed, the only visible source of support was the Support Black Business Movement, which would have gone practically unnoticed had it not been amplified by the death of George Floyd. The mandate of UNESCO is to build peace in the minds of men and women through education, the sciences, culture and communication. It seems self-evident, therefore, that in such unprecedented times, the organization would be at the forefront of the efforts to support African creatives. UNESCO has responded to that responsibility, choosing to do so by creating a platform on which African creatives can begin to federate. This platform, known as The Wave, is a podcast series that will endeavor to challenge leaders of the African and Afro-descendant cultural and creative industries about our future. The Wave Allegory refers to the incredible contemporary and cultural movement led by Africans and Afro-descendants all around the world, which currently is nourishing humanity with its creativity. We are the wave, we reaching out to the skies, Africa rising, moving like on its stars. We are the wave, tell the stories of life. Welcome to our listeners and guests. My name is Valerie Jumessi, and I am the artistic director and the marketer in a family business, which is called Upgrade. I am very, very happy to host this introductory episode, The Wave, which will endeavor to set the context uh, for the podcast series. My guests today are Tosin Animashawun, program specialist in charge of culture within the African department at UNESCO. Nelly Wanji, a branding and retail consultant, as well as founder and cultural curator at Moonlook, and Sheldon Kopman, creative director and CEO of Naked Ape, 
the uh, Southern African fashion house. So Tosin, um, I know you've been very moved and saddened by the negative impact that the COVID-19 pandemic was having on the African and Afro-descent community. And that is the reason why you actually initiate the idea of this podcast in order to provide a platform to federate African and Afro-descendant creative force. Can you tell us what the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly the, the lockdown, revealed to you regarding our creative and cultural industries? I guess I wouldn't say that the pandemic and its ensuing lockdown caused anything new in the way of problems. What it did do, however, was to cast a harsh light on the problems that have always been there and for which now we must find concrete solutions. Not just so we are better armed to face the economic difficulties that are to come post-COVID, but also so that our creatives don't lose the gains they've made over the last 10 years or so. Whichever sector you look at, the problems remain the same. The most visible one is linked to the lack of infrastructure, policies and regulations that must underpin and support the work of our creatives. This, in every meeting at UNESCO related to the creative industries, is a major problem that has come up. It is an issue that must be addressed and addressed urgently. In my view, however, there is a more insidious yet equally serious problem. It is one of which few people are aware and it is linked to the absence of structures where creatives from different sectors can meet, curate reliable information and collaborate both across sectors and across borders. African creatives tend to work in silos, and this, in my humble opinion, stunts their ability to grow, including creatively. I feel the pandemic and lockdown has enhanced this particular problem. There is every interest for creatives to organize themselves so they can trade experiences, learn lessons, create processes that can be replicated across the continent, and in other sectors of the creative and cultural industries. It is fundamental. Uh, what are your thoughts, Sheldon, about that? I absolutely agree. You know, Tosin speaks about the lack and the lack and the lack, and absolutely right. We've had these issues. These are pre-existing issues uh, way before COVID, and COVID basically has intensified it. And um, it's, been, it's been a hard impact on industry overall, but also time for industry to come correct. You know, we have, we are, we are at a stage right now where transparency is everything in the growth of our businesses, in the growth of our fashion and textile industry continentally. So we have to be able to be, we have to be able to get our consumers to understand what it is that they are buying, what, what it is that they're purchasing, who is benefiting from this, who made your clothes and how it impacts a country and a continent at large. Lily, do you have anything to add uh, on that questions? I, I think that um, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic has been um, very difficult for most creative uh, people on the continent, all sector combined, but it's also been an opportunity for us on working in this sector to um, discover a lot of challenges that might look like challenges for us today, but for me, there's a lot of opportunities coming with those, you know. Uh, of course, we have to face the challenge of uh, sourcing on the continent because uh, have free trade zone is not effective yet. And when all the countries were closing their borders, it became very, very difficult to, to just buy something in Turkey or buy something in China. Then we realized 
why not do it more often within her borders? And then we are faced with the challenge that, you know, sourcing some fabric from Accra when you're based in Johannesburg is very complicated. Same if you're based in Kigali and you want to buy something in Nigeria, it's very, very complicated. So I think that COVID-19 really exposed all those, those challenges that existed before, but turning it also into opportunities for us entrepreneurs to look more deeper on the continent, what we have to do to create an area where we can really interact, create wealth for her communities locally and enable her continent to be more competitive regarding uh, the rest of the world and being able to sustain herself on the continent if the world were to, you know, we don't know how long this is gonna last uh, because it started sometime around a year ago and we're still within it, you know. So I think that we can see it as problematic because it's very difficult on a daily basis, but we can also take this as an opportunity to really focus on what is important for us on the continent, uh, how we have to create value to sustain our communities and how we have to interact within our borders of the continent. So that's one of the first thing that really strikes me. And the second thing I would say the, the, the pandemic also created an, um, a willingness to talk to each other, you know, to understand how everybody's feeling. And it also highlighted the fact that we are not very structured in organization. You know, we don't have this uh, chamber of commerce, you know, gathering all people within the, let's say the contemporary art or, or cinema or music or fashion. So we just realized that, oh, maybe we need to talk to each other more often, understand what others are going through and maybe see if together we can come up with a solution. So I saw a lot of that emerging online. There was a lot of discussion, there was a lot of you know, webinars. Uh, so I think that's also very positive, I would say. And the third positive impact, if I could say that, I know we're still going through a lot of difficulties because of COVID. But we, ha we have to see some good in it. I would say the third beneficial impact for us has been the way we have put ourselves out there thanks to internet. It started long ago and with COVID-19 because that was the only way we could you know, connect to each other. I've seen a lot of creative going online. I've seen a lot of creative selling from, from wherever they were on the continent all across the world. And some of them have been doing very, very good, you know? So COVID-19 really exposed our challenges, but it also turned some of our challenges into opportunities. And I think now is the time for us to really get structure to get the best out of that, you know? And to be prepared if tomorrow we were to be sufficient on the continent. Who would do what? You know, maybe West Africa would be specialized in something, South Africa in something else, and then we will get like a supply chain which is more structured and enabling of creating value within the continent. That's what I, I would say in terms of uh, what I've seen emerging during the pandemic. Well, thank you very much, Nate. It's, it's so true. And I, I am too a firm believer that life happens for you, not to you. So even in the darkest of time, uh, how can we find solution in order to grow and to create more links together? So it makes 
a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Um, Sheldon, you, you, can you share with us what you, what you think could be integrated into uh, organizations, strategies, and business models into those African Afro-descendant brands uh, that they learn during this time? Do you have any um, like tips or, or things that you think could be uh, put into good use? Mm. You know, Valerie, this um, this is an ongoing conversation when it comes yeah. to actual creating structure or creating a workflow within the fashion and textile space. Um, we are all learning ourselves, especially this, the, 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 the more independent designers, who most of us are. We don't really have umbrella companies, so we don't have companies that uh, are able to take care of 10 brands or five brands at a time. Generally, those companies would offer you structure. So with us, the structures that we are creating are based on our, our resource and our capacities. And in growing that, we also have to be considering things like skills development and how do we take um, the existing skills that we have and how do we, how do we, um, how do we transfer this to generations to follow? Obviously, all of this, it's like school, you know, you have to have a syllabus in order for you to, to have some kind of learning mechanism that threads through the entire, the entire, um, the, the schooling of an individual. So when it comes to this is, we're doing a lot of self-learning, uh, self-teaching, and um, it leaves us in a very odd situation because sometimes, and most of the time, it's a lot to do with trial and error. Now, as Nelly had said earlier on, you know, we have to be able to have structured supply chains. Structured supply chains do require work and it takes a lot of networking. In my opinion, I think a fashion chamber of commerce, for example, or a clothing and textile chamber of commerce, for countries individually and then continentally collectively, would be one of the solutions. This is the kind of network that we need. This is the kind of channel that we need. This is the kind of, uh, 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 how do I say, governance that is required in order for us to create very proper structures within our, within our uh, uh, industry, countrywide uh, and continentally. So when we, when, we, when we look at this, what I'm trying to say, Valerie, is that what, hap what works in South Africa might not necessarily work in Nigeria or Morocco or Ethiopia for that matter, because we, where we have a whole heap of different challenges in each and every country, you know? Some countries are better with logistics than others, and um, some might be better with uh, textile development than others. Some have better government support than others, you know? But everybody's trying to make this thing work. And what happens is that we end up playing catch up. Because what we look at, we look at international systems that work. So we look at what the East is doing. We learn and understand what makes China so powerful when it comes to clothing and textile. What makes India so powerful and all the countries surrounding India. We look at the Europeans because they have legacy in creating beautiful garments, especially in the luxury space. Yet we ourselves need to, number one, understand what it takes to make a luxury garment and what it takes to make a commercial garment, 
are we there to feed and are we there to populate the masses or are we there to just craft away individually and sell to a very niche clientele so all of these things are very different so you're either going to design and stay within a luxury space or you're going to look to the more commercial space which means that you need to tap into bigger uh, uh, manufacturers with the, who only allow bigger MOQs. Oh, thank you, Shalvan. I was wondering what was for you pre preventing us as the continent uh, to create this unique voice or this chamber of commerce as uh, Sheldon was talking about. What do you think is the problem? I don't think that there's a, re a real problem or that anything has stopped us from doing it. It's just that it hasn't been done. Uh, there is increasingly among creatives a desire to do it. What they lack at the moment is the impulse that government support for such an initiative would bring. Now, with the new free trade zone that's been, uh, that's been established for the African continent through the African Union, I hope that impulse will come, that that support for such an institution will come. But we have to be very careful to ensure that in getting governmental uh, support, we don't lose the spontaneity of the creatives. So the creatives themselves have to be very, very um, active in the, in, the, um, in the elaboration of a strategy for such, a, for such a platform so that it goes in the direction of their needs rather than having something that may not necessarily um, suit their needs being imposed on them. So this really has to be a veritable partnership with discussion between governments and the stakeholders. You were talking about platform and it's great because I think it's time to talk about the power of the internet, which uh, during the lockdown we saw how powerful the internet could be. Two main events within the world uh, black community were particularly interesting to observe. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the Vogue challenge initiated by the, co, um, the Oslo based students, Salman Noor, after she tweeted, being black is not a crime. Of course, it was based on what happened to George Floyd and all the protests and the Black Lives Matters. Um, and the hashtag was uh, shared over 100,000 times on Instagram, which is a lot. And also the launch of uh, Black is King, the Beyonce's co-produced visual album that was distributed by uh, Disney Plus. And that showcases a lot of African artists such as Burnaboy, Shada Wale, Tiwa Savage, and many more. So for those two events, uh, I feel like it was a great example of the way uh, of how culture can be used to protest, to praise, to counter the negative vibe around uh, police brutalities and suffering of uh, the black community worldwide, if we can say that. Um, so that's amazing. But I also feel like it's also, also uh, only a part that can be seen because there is like the roots also of the internet. And the roots of the internet is if we can uh, make a comparison with the tree is like all the data that has been shared and that has been used, not always for us, but actually our data. Uh, for instance, we can think about the Black Parade website that uh, Beyonce has created where she showcased a lot of artists. But the question is, 
are we taking advantages of this data and how can we do if it's not the case? And I think Nelly, you have a pretty uh, particular opinion on that. Can you tell us more? Yes. <clears throat> well, you said something very interesting. Um, as, as we look at networks and data, we have to look at the roots of things, um, where the data comes and where the data goes and who owns the data at some point. I think when it comes to us on the continent, we tend to just want the fruit of the tree, but we don't pay attention to really um, um, emphasize on the roots and what can come back to us. That's why I think uh, a lot of platforms are not owned by us. Uh, maybe, I don't think it's not, it's because we have, we don't understand the value of owning platforms, but maybe because it requires a lot of uh, resources to be able to design and establish a platform. Uh, and when, if we come back to the Black is King lunch and the strategy with the Black Parade and everything, um, for me, it was very scary to see that happening uh, uh, under my eyes. So seeing all this designer being referenced on one platform, which is not even on the continent and kind of pushing black culture, you know? And I would say that if you look at the number of African within that community of black parade is close to something like 80%. It means that 80% of the directory that should be owned by African regarding that industry, which is the fashion and accessory industry, is now owned by somebody in the United States. So if you had, if you had to look at the roots and to go deeper and say, where is the data stored? It's not stored in any server on the continent. Uh, who can use that data today? Certainly not institution or companies based on the continent. So who can benefit from aggregating all those information? I don't think it's gonna be us. So when I look at that and I see how we just transfer the ownership and the possibility of building wealth out of something to a third party, which is out of the, con who is out of the continent, it scares me because they can do whatever they want with that data. And now they own the people who have been referencing themselves on those platforms because now those people depend on those platforms to be visible, to be out there and to have a voice as well. Not only, sure, internet is free. Everybody can wake up in the morning and create a platform, but we know that it's not that simple. So I think the way we have to look at that is like, what is the value of the information we're giving out there when we are posting on Instagram, where we are storing on Pinterest, where we are posting on Facebook? What is the value of that action? And what can the value of that action yield for you, you know, as an entrepreneur based in Douala or based in Abidjan or based in Accra? When you collect, when we collectively give all those information out there and we don't realize that we're giving her power away, it scares me because, you know, we, are not, we do not understand what, I, I think we do not understand exactly where we are and what we're giving out. And because also on her continent, we don't yet have people and, uh, with the power of building such a network, it's a problem for us. It's a problem for us. And 
the visibility we are owning, we are, we are gaining, I would say with that, doesn't give us any ownership on the fruit that visibility is creating, you know? So the wealth we could create out of that, we are not creating it, you know? We are giving her creativity away, we are giving her power away, and we do not own the value that is, it is creating because this platform are using all the data to sell to companies who are able to buy the click, you know? To say that if you stay online for 20 minutes today and you post 20 images, it's worth this. So that platform is selling that out. So I think the way we have to look at the data today and look at how we are interacting on the internet, we have to be able to go at the roots of what internet is and try to own what we are putting out there to protect ourselves when we are putting all our information out there. Because otherwise, you know, the value it will be creating is not going to be re returning to, to, to us because at the end of the day, it's the person who is able to transform that into cash who is the real king of the place, you know? And we are not able to do that today. We are not doing that. We're just, we're just accessories in a battle that we don't even know is, is being fought, you know? We are at war, but we're like playing a game. We don't even understand where it begins. So I really think we have to focus on what networks are made for and try to build our own network within the continent, independently of all the social network that we might be plugged into. We have to start having our own information. We should have on a database, maybe store somewhere on the continent. The, the, the recap of all those people in creative, creative industry, how many are we? How many wealth do we create? You know, so much of what we are creating in cult, uh, cultural and creative industry off uh, um, the market, you know, it's not like uh, registered business, clearly registered business that we're not able even to put a value today on that, but we have to be able to do that exercise. So I think it's very important for us today to understand what community is and what is the value of being organized together on the continent before going outside, before going on social media. And Sheldon talked about something very interesting. Company who can have umbrella brands, take different brands under, uh, under the umbrella, try to manage them and really prep them before they can be out there, you know, because just being out there like that at the mercy of uh, any other platform is not helping us create the value we could create with your creativity. So that is what I can say regarding that. Thank you, Nelly. And uh, I will add that, of course, uh, it's good to be on the platform, but then you have to be able to handle all the uh, orders that are coming your ways and to have to, I have been the chain I had the chance to talk to someone who was on the platform and she went into burnout just after that because it was too much for her to handle that she didn't have the she didn't have the 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 infrastructure to handle that so it's really it comes back to what Sheldon was saying uh, Sheldon do you have anything to add about that uh, internet and data owning and absolutely. platforms <laughs> absolutely Valerie absolutely <laughs> You know, Nelly, she's very passionate about this, and I share her passion because really, it's it's all well and good way. You say that wow, there's an opportunity for you to put yourself out there, and it's for free. No, it's not for free. It comes at a huge, huge, huge cost, right? So, we know Africa is a very creative continent. We are extremely creative people because we do not have 
half the resource, let alone the capacity to do what happens in the rest of the world when it comes to the fashion industry or the creative industries at large. So the rest of the world who has capacity, let's take China as an example. China sees something that you're posting, you post your collection out there, they have a look at this, they say, okay, this is great. Oh, this is what these Africans are doing. Wonderful. They can produce it right under your nose without you even knowing it, without you even being able to claim anything of it. Because you put it out there. The minute you put something out there, you must be able to produce and you must be able to supply that demand that you have created. You cannot supply a demand and not create anything with it. And a lot of us are doing that. You cannot sell ones and twos online yeah, and think that you've got a good business going. No, you sell ones and twos to the people around you. Ones and twos online, you cannot do that because the minute you put your creation out there, believe you me, you will have lawsuits from here till kingdom come if you are going to try to pursue it and it's going to cost you a fortune because people are just going to pirate you. You're just putting yourself out for piracy. And this is what Nelly's basically saying as well. Like the minute you're out there, you can forget about it. Now let's look at Africa, okay? Internet is an issue and it is extremely costly in some countries like South Africa, Swaziland, etc. It's costly, like, and it's sporadic. We have power cuts, no internet. You know, there's always some kind of challenge. It's, this is Africa, TIA. So what we do within our space We've got to create our own solutions based on our challenges. And don't be so hasty to just put something out there because believe you me, you're doing yourself a disfavor more than a favor. Yes, it's all nice to be seen. And we live in a world of vanity right now. Everybody wants to see themselves. Everybody's a, is a, everybody's a fashion photographer. Everybody's a makeup artist. Everybody's a stylist. Oh my gosh, there's so many stylists. You have no idea. They don't understand two things about styling, but they are stylists. Yeah, it's the same as designers. So many designers out there because everybody thinks it's such an easy thing to do. But nobody really understands the process of making a garment. Nobody even understands the textile that they are wearing. They have no idea. It just feels nice. They don't know the impact that it has on the earth. They don't know the impact it has in its, in its pre and post life. You know, so when Valerie, this, this thing is like, it's out of control. And the more we look at fast fashion, the more we look at fast fashion brands, and you think, oh no, my gosh, we've got to compete with these people. It's impossible to compete with these people. You can forget about it. And besides, why do you want to cause more harm to the earth? They've done enough harm already. You know, we are, we are living with landfills of, of, of waste from the, from, from the second largest polluting industry in the world, fashion, after mining. Can you imagine after, after oil? This is ridiculous. Yet not enough has been said about it. There's not enough uh, clothing and textile literacy that gets taught among various different uh, uh, secondary, primary and secondary schooling, let alone tertiary. Even the people in ter tertiary institutions who are teaching academies of learning for fashion don't even speak about this. Everything gets sort of swept under the carpet. So it's, 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 there's a lot to it. And the more we want to put ourselves out there online and 
say blah, blah, blah. And, you know, everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be a celebrity. Everybody wants to be recognized. You need to take a step back and look at the situation and see actually what is going on. You need to evolutionize your thinking and become an evolutionary minded individual. And in doing so, it means you've got to look for the next step as opposed to looking at what's current. Work with what is around you, work with your immediate communities around you, with your immediate resource, with create capacity amongst that, and then you know, grow it from that point onwards. And when you do have the proper investment into the business that is required for it to go global, then you do so. But not every brand can be a global brand. That's the fact. Uh, we want to create like global companies and global brands, but we are not maybe ready to do so. And also we want to repeat some uh, structures or models that are not working in the Western world anymore today. So maybe it's time for us to realize that our own power is in creating organization that will have our best interest in at heart and not wasting time on waiting to be accepted by you know people who have their own agendas basically um i'm gonna ask you a question i cannot i kind of know the answer but i'm still gonna ask it to you um tosin do you think that we uh the african people are waiting or in need of other countries validation to have um their voice taken seriously absolutely not <laughs> I don't think that Africans need the validation of everybody else. What they do need to do, though, is to learn to appreciate what they have. The sad fact is that I find very often on the continent that people don't even know what there is. And even where they do know what there is, <clears throat> they will nine times out of 10 prefer to go and get the same product made in Paris or in London or in Italy, because somehow they think it's got to be necessarily better. Whereas it's not at all the case. It's changing. That sort of attitude is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. It's not changing fast enough. Earlier on, Nelly and Sheldon were talking about platforms or internet platforms on which Africans could or should be putting their own products. But for that to happen, we've got to trust each other. Imagine me, I have some money and I want to create a, a global sort of brand house. And an African LVMH or a caring or something like that. I can't guarantee you that even in my own country, if I approach designers with the idea of setting up such an establishment, they would have enough trust in me to let go and give part of their power to me so I can help them run their business properly. Now, how much worse will that be if I go to somebody in Ghana or in South Africa or in Ethiopia? There might, if I'm lucky, maybe there might be one or two people, but actually, the problem, one of the fundamental problems we have in Africa is that we don't trust each other. And we don't trust each other because we don't know each other. I'm very lucky, I work in the UN. And because I work in the UN and because I worked on Africa uh, for a large part, I was able to travel all around the continent. So I learned a fair amount about the continent. 
but most Africans don't know each other. They have almost as many preconceptions about people from other countries as we accuse Europeans or people from out, other people from outside the country as having. So we need, I mean, I am so in favor of the idea of trying to build a place, a platform on which African creatives can meet more easily, whether it's in the contemporary arts, in architecture, in, in uh, fashion, in textile or whatever, that we need to create spaces that introduce these people to each other, but that also almost force them to work together. Do you see what I mean? Because until they start to do that, then the confidence that they need to advance together is not going to be there. I mean, we're all sort of saying, oh, it's wonderful, the free trade zone that's being created by the African Union and stuff. Hmm, let's wait and see how it functions. Because I am a little bit concerned that there will be a free trade zone, but with a lot of countries still practicing a lot of uh, protectionism. And they'll practice that protectionism because the people in their countries are afraid. I, as a Nigerian, know that very often when I go to places, they go, oh, Nigeria again, you know? But it's not Nigeria again. I love to work with people from other African countries and I'm very privileged to be able to do so. And I know that a lot of people in Nigeria love to, to, to to collaborate with people outside the country. But that's probably, there's probably a high level of that kind of appreciation in Nigeria because so many of us have been educated abroad and have had the opportunity to meet other Africans outside the continent. So we build bridges with them and then come back onto the continent and it's natural for that collaboration to continue. So definitely there's a need for platforms Definitely, we need to start uh, educating people on the continent about the creatives and the creativity on the continent. They don't know about it. Very few of them, you know. When people do know about creatives and creativity, there's a very, very huge uh, sort of bent towards West Africa and Southern, and, and South Africa, not even Southern Africa, South Africa and West Africa. But very little is known about what's happening in East Africa. Almost nothing is known about what's happening in the Lusophone countries like Mozambique and Angola, you know? And we tend even sometimes to forget that the Maghreb countries are part of Africa, yet they are, they're a very important part of Africa. You said something that touched me, the fact that uh, we, don't trust, they, they, we don't trust each other, like you don't trust your neighbor, but I also feel like it's hard to trust someone else if you don't trust yourself, you know, and, and sometimes, um, but we may be uh, going to see that in about the art, uh, the contemporary arts, people don't know about their own designers inside the country. So it feels like, yes, 
let's trust each other. But I feel like it comes from there, from within, from the beginning. And if you don't have that, it's hard to go outside and to try to even create something with some, someone else. It's really hard. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I said to you, if I try to create a, a, an LVMH in Nigeria, hmm, yeah. I wouldn't like to bet on the number of Nigerian designers I'd get to come into a structure like that. Because yeah. there is going to be the issue of trust. And for as long as they don't trust me, they're going to trust somebody who comes from, I don't know, Angola or Mozambique or even South Africa, even less. But the thing that frustrates me, Valerie, is that they will trust somebody who comes from Italy. I know. Or from France or from some other place. And they will accept terms that are actually disadvantageous to them. Whereas if I propose the same terms, they wouldn't be so, in fact, they would scream. Of <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they would be very upset. So we really have to deal with these trust issues. We really have to, but they, th these things don't happen on their own. 150, 200 years ago, there was an equal amount of competition between European countries. Whereas today, European, North American uh, creatives collaborate naturally. So the trust obviously amongst the Europeans has been built over the years. And the one with the North Americans is very natural because, <laughs> because of, you know, they're the same people, if you like, to a large extent. Um, this is what we need to start to do. So when you think of somebody like Beyonce with her Black is King, I know that there is some resistance to what she has done on the continent and maybe they're right. But I think that it's a good thing that she's collaborating with artists on the continent. I think it's a positive thing. And if she hasn't done the research behind the, the creativity that she's uh, displaying so that the narrative that is going out there is the wrong one, well, shame on her and her team because they should do their research, but even more shame on Africans because trying to find any information about anything relative to creativity in Africa is near impossible. The number of times that people will come to me and say, oh my goodness, you know, there's the most amazing artists that I've seen and that I love their work. Where can I find stuff to read about them? There isn't anything, you know, oh, I love this technique of fabrics. Where can I find something to read about it? If there is anything written at all, it's generally written by somebody who's white from outside the continent. So why are we not doing the research? Why are we not giving fellowships to people? It's not that we don't have people on the continent who want to do that. It's that we don't have people on the continent who are there to help them. Thank you, Tosin. Thank you very much. Uh, we talked a lot about education and the fact and transmission as well. That's, I think, something you talked about, Sheldon, about how can we make sure that if we have the knowledge or if we want to unlearn something, how can we make sure that the generation after is going to be able to have this knowledge or 
is going to make we're going to make sure that they unlearn the fact that you can not trust your the people that look like you but you can trust people that are outside the continent um Nelly do you have something to say about that about finding ways to be taken seriously uh on the African continent how can we do that how can we educate our our population and how can we make sure that we create platforms that are going to be a legacy to our uh, children later? I think that one of the one of the main question within what Tosin was just talking earlier is um, identity. Who are we? Do we know who we are? That's I think that's the beginning and that's the roots of the problem and even the trust issue that we have maybe trusting herself and trusting others will look like us, you know, at, at some point that, that um, being rooted in her identity has been broken, you know, uh, because the education system hasn't taught us to know who we are about her history, her ancestor, her past. A lot of those are not taught in school. So how do you expect somebody who knows close to nothing about who they are, where they come from, maybe the battle the ancestor fought in the past. How do you expect somebody like that to be anchored, to be consistent, to be um, assured that what he's saying is right and not, and not be in a position of waiting to be validated or to be accepted? That's the first problem I would say. The second problem is that most of the paradigms we are exposed to are not concepts that were created on the continent. A lot of things that we are navigating between today were not born on the continent. So we are living with concepts that didn't take roots in her ideologies. We don't even know what her ideology is as African, you know. So we are navigating in somebody's world with the rules that we didn't create and sometimes that we are discovering along the way. So it's very, very difficult for us African if we are not more assertive of who we are to be living in a world where we are not wanted, where we are rejected and where we are expected to be validated somehow. So I think all that start with identity. Who are we? What do we want? Where do we want to go and with whom? Those three elementary questions, I think, can help us kind of redefine who we are or understand already who we, who we, who we are and redefine who we want to be and create a path where we are authentic to herself, where we are creating a solution to answer to her own problems, where we're not trying to look like somebody we've seen in US or France or wherever, where we're just trying to be her authentic self, you know? And, and all that for me comes with a lot of education. So we have to go back to the core of her history to trying to dig deeper into what happened before colonization uh, came to the continent? Who were we? And what can we take from that to create who we want to be in, on, on the in 21st century? You know, What future we want for our children? And, and I think 
if we manage to understand a little bit about that identity, the trust issue will fade away because we will understand that we come from the same roots, you know? People who are living today in South Africa, who are Zulu, you know, or, or Kosa or whoever, they're coming from the same roots as those living in Nigeria and being named Yoruba, or those living in Cameroon named uh, um, Bamileke. We are all Bantus. So the day we understand that, for those who have the chance to be exposed to that information, we realize that, oh, actually, you know, if you go back seven, 10 generations, we are cousins. My mother was married to your uncle. Then we understand that this trust issue that we have doesn't have to exist. It's just some kind of, you know, imagination we are packed our mind with telling us that we are different. But we see already even with the color of our skin that we are not different. But the, the, imagery, the imagery that is created around us as black people, what does it tell us? It tell us also always the same story, struggle, battle, fighting, trying to not take off the name tags, you know, slavery, all these negative things. We have not been building uh, uh, around us you know, positive things. And that's what identity is. You define your identity with, with positive concepts. So we have to be able to, to reappropriate those positive concepts about us, to be able to be in a world where we know exactly who we are and why we don't like maybe the color red and we prefer the color green, you know? Not because somebody taught us that color is called green and it's a color of plants or whatever, and then we should like it, you know? We should define our own concept and that's only comes with education. So I, I dream for us to have access to more information that can help us understand the core of who we are and to be able to define how we interact with others. And that is gonna be one of the key to unlock her problem of trust within the continent, within each other, you know. So as Tosin, I've been lucky to be in an environment where I'm, you know, come, I'm, I'm around people from everywhere on the continent. So I'm very comfortable going to Rwanda, going to Ghana, going to Nigeria, because I've been exposed to knowledge, you know. So I think we should expose as many people as possible to knowledge and to be able to educate themselves, to interact. And as Tosin was saying, if we need to force Africans to work together, we have to force them somehow, figure out a way, figure out some kind of structure where they're talking to each other, they're interacting with each other. At the end of the day, you will see they will drink one beer, they will eat some chicken or some meat, and they, they will be happy the day after they will sign the contract. So I think we have to create those kind of environment within the continent. Thank you very much, Nelly. Um, as you said, education is key, knowledge is key and power as well. And also the exposition, as you said, what it does to our subconscious is so important to be exposed to things that are possible. So yes, I, I can't agree more with you. Uh, Sheldon, do you have anything to say to add for this about how to create, um, I don't know, organization to be taken seriously or? Absolutely do, Valerie, you know, like, <laughs> the more we the more we have these dialogues the more we have conversations around identity which 
is key, it's imperative, as Nelly had mentioned, as Tosin had tapped on. This is where it starts and where it ends. You know thyself. We've been hearing it through music, when we listen to lyric, whether it be that from Jamaica, that from our continent, whether it be Fela Kuti or Bob Marley, you know? This is all about, it's, this, 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 there's so much, there's so much uh, knowledge and history about ourselves within lyric, within the music space. Now, when it comes to us writing our own history, like who has written our history? Who can tell me proudly a country in Africa that can say, well, all the history that has ever been written about us, we have written it ourselves. Because then they need to give us exactly the way, they need to give us the system. Because really, we don't know our own history. We don't know about it. Here in South Africa, I can ask people, where's Djibouti? They're gonna look at me as if I'm crazy, if I'm making a joke, because they just don't understand where it is, you know? They think Timbuktu is something that you say in a, in, in, in a rhyme. They don't know that it's actually a place that exists. <laughs> so it's like, it's, uh, it's, 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 we know more about the Western world than we know about Africa. So the minute we start, once again, the conversation of education, as Nelly had said, as Tosin had said, educating our people, right? It's not that we have to start, we've got to find different ways of educating our people. It does not have to be uh, uh, in a book. It could be spoken word. There's so many things that we can do. You know, uh, knowledge is not one directional and it's not only books that give us this. Conversation, poetry, form, you name it. There's various different art forms that can tell our history, but we need to own our history. And we need, to, we need ownership. We really need ownership. Ownership is a big, big issue for us. And the more we look at the situation and the more we see how fragmented we are as societies, fragmented we are as countries and how untrusting we are when it comes to, uh, we just don't trust, like Tosin said, you rather we will trust something from Italy before we trust um, the person around the corner. That is not cool. And the reason why is that we've been, we've been conditioned as Africans to think that we are, we are criminal minded or we, 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 we not to be trusted. So we trust everybody else before we trust ourselves. And I don't know where the buck stops with that, you know, but the Black Lives Matter movement is very, very powerful, very powerful. And it's only just the beginning, let me tell you. It's not even, we haven't even, we haven't even scraped the surface with this. It's about to get massive. And we in Africa need to have bigger voices than that of the Americans. Because yes, we are the dark continent. Yes, we are the black continent. Yet, we are not the ones who are making the noise at the moment. The ones who are making the noise are still the Americans. And I applaud them for that. But we need to follow suit. As Tosin had said earlier, you know, with Beyonce, it's not that she, she disagrees with what happened. She just thinks that the, the research behind it all and the people who, 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 who basically put their feelers out there, I don't think they did enough. I think they could have gone broader than what they, uh, what they, they tapped into. But it is definitely the start of a movement that we ourselves can now take ownership of. 
And I feel very passionate about this, this, this space that we're in, this COVID space that we're in. We thought it was over, it's just gotten worse. More and more people are dying, more and more people are losing their jobs. So for us, like, we still got to look at it and, and re-question ourselves, you know? We need to review, reflect, reassess, revise, rejuvenate by reinventing. That's what we need to be doing. That's how we need to be thinking. We need to come up with processes that work for us. And I say no more, man, you know? I think I leave it at that for now, uh, Valerie. <laughs> I think there's an important point that needs to be made. Yes. And that is the one about the African diaspora, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is the sixth region of the African Union. I don't know if many people are aware of that. I'm from the Yoruba culture, okay? And I remember traveling to Brazil, to Bahia, with my parents fairly young. And my parents rushing around Bahia like 10-year-old children because they found things in Bahia that were things, whether it be food, ways of doing things, ways of dressing, that no longer exist in Nigeria, which is the biggest population of Yoruba people. Huh? Um, they no longer exist in modern day Nigeria, but they are still there, preserved in Bahia and stuff. So I think that there's a conversation that needs to be had between the continent and the diaspora also in telling our story, because I think it could be enormously useful um, in helping us to find our identity, to understand. Look, there was colonization. It is the reality of our life, certainly in West Africa, and certainly, I mean, 23%, I think it is, or 27% of the slaves that went to the Americas were from the Yoruba trade, from, my, from, uh, from the Yoruba tribe, my tribe. So it is an unpleasant part of the history, but it is part of our history. And at the end, it has enriched our history. So in identifying ourselves or trying to find our identities, let's keep these people in mind. They're part of us. It's so true. And it's really hard sometimes for the diaspora to find her, her place or her spot because it feels like we are not a part of the Africa, but we are not a part of the Western world. So we are in between and we don't know where to stand. But yet I think that, as you said, being together is a strength. And because we understand the ways of the Western uh, countries and that we understand also part of the ways of the African, we have like this huge power. Um, and if we can all work together in order to build something that is really us and the definition of us is us to define, um, it would be beautiful. So hopefully it's something that we'll be able to see soon. Uh, actually, we are working on that, I think. I think we are very lucky and we're living a great, a great, you know, moment in our life as Africans. And, and I think maybe sometime the people from the diaspora have a hard time defining where they should be, mm -hmm. but they are in between. And that is an opportunity because they are the connectors. Yes. Connect the continent to the rest of the world because the first of our culture that somebody maybe uh, in France or Spain will be aware of is thanks to somebody from the diaspora. So, and because of the diaspora, if you look at the last 10 years, this wave of new Africa 
has been coming up, you know. So I, I'm, I'm really happy that we're living this moment because this is the moment where we redefine. This is really her tipping point, you know. From here now on, we are who we decide. And, and that, is, that is the greatest opportunity the history have given us because it's because of what happened in the past that we are here in this position and that we are able to say that her community around the world is, is everywhere, you know? Do you know anywhere in the world where you can go where you would not find Africans? So we are lucky that her culture can be, you know, all over, all over the place. So it's now to us to define that narrative to and to you know to emphasize on her identity and to push who we are out there and that is what the wave is all about you know and, and I'm very happy that we even call her post her podcast the wave you know it's like when you look at the sea and you see that enormous wave coming at the at the at the shore and let's say the world is the shore and we are the wave and you know we're coming strong and I'm very happy that you know, for everything that's happening on the continent, outside the continent, everything that's happening around Black culture in general is very empowering. And uh, we're kind of redefining culture somehow. When you look at fashion designer being inspired by her, her, her traditional clothes, you look at in music is now, you know, everybody wants to put a little of Afro everywhere. You look in cuisine, you see we have this young African chef just have a Michelin star. It's not that it's being accepted or whatsoever. I don't call it that. It's just that how food is that good, you know? So we have the opportunity in contemporary art to, to have the greatest artists. So we are very, very lucky. So we should, you know, tap into that and build our future. We are the wave, as you said. We are the wave, yeah? We are wave. A tsunami is a series of waves. We need to become a tsunami, right? That's, that's the force that needs to be reckoned with. That is Africa and the diaspora. Guys, thank you very much for having me. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure being part of this conversation. Well, many thanks, Sheldon, Nelly, and Tosin for sharing your knowledge, your passion, your experiences. And for you guys, um, make sure you don't miss the launch episode of The Wave next week. Until then... Take care and see you on The Wave podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wave. Found out more about the series on our social media accounts. We are the wave, we reaching out to the skies, Africa rising, moving like on the skies, we are the wave.